0: Welcome to the Medical Treatment Decisions and the Law podcast hosted by me, Christopher Johnston QC from Sargent's Inn Chambers. Today I'm joined by my co-editor, Sophia Roper QC from Sargent's in Chambers. She has a core practice in medical treatment and complex welfare cases. She combines a wealth of practical experience with an academic focus on knotty points of law being described by her clients as the Encyclopaedia Britannica of Court of Protection Cases. She acted in two seminal cases concerning children, Regard and Re Evans, and in the groundbreaking case on contingent declarations, GSTT and R. You can find out more about her in the description of this episode. Together, we'll be talking about Chapter 4 of Medical Treatment Decisions in the Law, which concerns deciding for others, children this was an area that required an extensive uh, change from the last edition. What did you see, Sophia, as the major themes or changes that we were having to address in this edition?
1: Well, in some ways we had an embarrassment of choice because really so much has happened in, in the area of decisions about children since the last edition. I think one of the things that Lots of people, including many non-lawyers, will have noticed is the number of very high profile cases involving uh, withdrawal or not withdrawal of life sustaining treatment from very small children and babies. And of course, one of the things that's made, have made those cases so high profile is that their parents have permitted their names to be released. And uh, sometimes that's part of a funding campaign. Sometimes it's part of a, a, a general campaign. But that's un, that is that is an unusual development. And of course, it has meant that those cases have been picked up by the media.
0: I mean, it ties into... There's often been a criticism out there, which personally I felt slightly unfounded, about transparency in the Court of Protection and transparency in dealing with medical treatment cases involving children. But certainly... I'd agree with you. I mean, the difference now uh, compared to, say, '98 when I was starting yeah. this, with the amount of publicity that some of these cases attract, it really has gone on occasions quite off the scale, presenting yes. particular problems for the parents. Yeah. And you can see why they're driven to seek publicity because the lack of funding that's available. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think knock-on effect for hospital trusts as well hasn't there been?
1: Yes, very, very much so. I, I think. Well, it's very hard for parents because I think it's one more thing that is overwhelming in in circumstances which are always just beyond imaginably dreadful for any parent dealing with this sort of case. But it's also uh, can be very challenging for trusts because, again, they're in very uncharted waters. Uh, Typically, those who who work in paediatric or neonatal intensive care, there are lots of quite young, very dedicated nurses, but they are utterly unprepared for sudden uh, overwhelming publicity with reporters camped outside the hospital yeah,
0: um, trying crea- to talk to them. Yeah, and it, it's creating an adversarial environment yes. when it's not an adver- meant to be an adversarial court system, and actually on both sides, people are focused really on what they see as the best interests of the child.
1: yes. Um, inevitably people read read reports of these cases in the newspapers and they're partial and they and they form their own opinions. I think it, it, it's not all bad in that it encourages a wider debate about the, the very fundamental question of how much say a parent should have over what happens to their child in these cases. Because typically the law has been that it's the judge will always say how important the views of the parents are. But the vast majority of cases to date have nonetheless gone the way that uh, the hospital trusts have sought, uh, based on what are the best interests of the child.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll deal with I mean, an exception to that, that we'll keep case in a moment. But it is interesting, despite the levels of publicity, despite um, a number of appellate cases really seen since the third edition that I suppose the fundamentals of the underlying law, the underlying legal framework, haven't changed?
1: Not at all. And the two cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court have emphatically emphasised that the best interest test is the gold standard and that that is the one that prevails in this country. It doesn't prevail everywhere. It's not the same test in in, in other countries. But that is what we have here.
0: Shall we start by talking about the case that is the exception, I think it's the Rakeeb case, I think Katie yes. Gollop and Chambers appeared in that case. Can you give us a little bit of the background to that decision?
1: So a little bit of the, the, the background, again, it's a case that's reasonably well known, but um, it was a case in, involving a, yeah, a young child, but not a baby, and a child who was in particular found to have been old enough to have developed her own views about, about certainly about religious issues. She'd suffered a, a non-traumatic brain injury but had, as a result, sustained severe brain damage. And the essential dispute was as to whether all treatment should be withdrawn or whether she should be transferred to Italy, where there was a hospital that was ready to receive her and offering care and treatment there.
0: And we'd seen, I think, in other cases, where similar proposals have been made for children.
1: Yes. Yes, that? Uh, certainly, in Alfie Evans, um, the Bambino Gesù Hospital in in Rome had said that it was willing, in principle, to take to take Alfie in in, the, in that case.
0: So, it was the Brucke case, with uh, as Mr Justice McDonald, yes, decision, um, the trust were seeking. Essentially, I think it was a specific issue order under the inherent jurisdiction of the court saying that sustaining treatment should not continue. Yes. Um, And also, were they seeking to address this issue of the transfer, potential transfer to Italy?
1: Yes, they addressed, he he addressed all of those. So, um... It procedurally, the cases are sometimes dealt with entirely in the inherent jurisdiction, and sometimes as a, a specific issue order under the Children Act. But it doesn't really make any difference to the outcome. But those were the competing those were the competing outcomes, and uh, Mr Justice MacDonald, it, it is quite unusual, but he decided in that case that life sustaining treatment should continue. That that was in Peter's best interests, and that she. Should be transferred to the hospital in in Italy. There are a number of factors in that case which which were quite unusual. In that, in particular, it was uh, the evidence was that she wasn't in any pain, and so what is conventionally referred to in in a lot of these cases as overly burdensome treatment wasn't a negative factor for her. The,
0: yeah, the, I think there have been discussion in cases about effectively whether burdensome treatment should be the, the test. It's not the test. The overarching test is best interest. Yes. But the absence of pain here was a, a clear factor. Just quoting, and this is from our book in terms of the summary, all, he also noted that the Italian os- hospital that had agreed to provide t- treatment had a detailed, fully thought out and funded care plan that will look to move to Taffeta to a position where she can, following a tracheostomia and a gastroscopy, be cared for by her family at home on a ventilator. And he was drawing a contrast there with yes. the guard and the Evans case. I, th-
1: I think, um, I-, I wasn't in, in Rakib, but looking at the judgment, there was a very detailed treatment plan. And so the proposal was clear and, and well thought out all the way through rather than being... Um, an an open offer that still required further exploration.
0: I mean, just just touching on that, it strikes me in terms of practical advice in these types of applications, and I've had it with adult cases involving issues to do with anorexia, where initially a case has come to court saying, for example, in the anorexia context, there should be force feeding here. Similarly, in the child context, it could be saying, there's this plan to go to Italy. But I think the important point for those dealing with the applications is the judges are incredibly interested in what's behind that, aren't they? Yes. I mean, for example, in the anorexia case I was describing, there was an adjournment in order for the trust to say, well, look, what is your plan here? Is that really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's an important practical aspect here that they were... Yes. You know, it was obviously on the child subs effectively addressed on the family side, I should say, effectively addressed in Raheem so that Mr Justice MacDonald could feel content that there was a plan that worked in the best interests of the child.
1: And I think that that level of detail, which is often very difficult to secure um, for parents... Who are trying to explore this sort of possibility, but it does make a real difference to the outcome of the case because the judge can see in black and white what will actually happen and I think that can be contrasted with uh, one of the proposals in um in the case of Alta Fixler where what was being suggested was a, a transfer to israel uh, and uh, and where Mr Justice MacDonald specifically raised the fact that the plan was a very much only an outline plan, and that it hadn't been fleshed out. Uh, one of the other things that was uh, significant in the in the Rakeed case was that, although he said they were not determinative, Mr Justice MacDonald took into account the fact that Tafida had already developed her own religious views to a limited extent, um, only to a limited extent because of her age, but she had clearly shown an interest uh, in following I'm, her parents' religion. I'm,
0: I think this is an interesting thing, that it ties to this assessment of best interests, and we commented on it in the introduction to this edition, I commented on it in the introduction to the third edition, that whilst we don't have substituted judgment test in England and Wales, that what is the case is that best interests, there's been this far greater focus on the personal and the subjective yes. in looking at what should happen. I mean, it, it's, it can be seen more starkly, and we'll talk about this when we're dealing with adults, but here in uh, the Rakeep case, it clearly was important that there was this element of understanding of the child within this religious context.
1: Yes. And it, it, you you definitely see it very clearly in the way the law's developed in the Court of Protection, but also in the way that it's developed in the family division cases about about children. There is a, an increasingly intense focus on the specific circumstances of the child. And Tafida Rakib, because she was a little bit older than some of these cases, had developed her own views um, again, that can be contrasted with um, with the experience of Alta Fixler, who had had never developed... She hadn't lived long enough um, and hadn't developed enough cog- cognitive ability to be able to form her own religious views. Um, that's not to say that the religious background would be irrelevant in such a case, but it it looks as though it will be afforded less weight where what is being said is this is a child who comes from this specific religious background rather than this is a child who comes from this specific religious background and has already started to embrace it for themselves. That's the material difference.
0: I mean, that takes us nicely, I think, to the re kiss case, yes. uh, which Sir James Mumby give judgment in, which is very interesting in the context of the Human Rights Act, and looking at the rights of the individual, that when you're dealing with children who are 14, 15, who may be Gillick competent, or dealing with 16 and 17-year-olds, that looking to what extent that has shifted in terms of the approach that's been taken, particularly in case life or death situations.
1: So I think in, in, in that area... One of the things that's been reinforced is that up to the age of 18, a court has an inherent jurisdiction to override the wishes and and decisions of a child, whether they are Gilic competent or not. And unusually, even if they um, are assessed as having the capacity within the meaning of the Mental Capacity Act to make decisions for themselves. So there's a slight tension there between the fact that the Mental Capacity Act applies generally to those who are 16 and generally, once an individual is found to have capacity, the courts regard themselves, I think the Court of Protection regards itself properly as unable to make that decision for an individual. But the High Court still retains an inherent jurisdiction to override even the capacitous decision of a 16 or 17 year old, which can actually mean that deciding capacity is it is a redundant issue and it can be a counterproductive issue. You can, you can be um, expending time and a good deal of emotional energy, uh, um, uh, potentially distressing the child quite considerably um, to reach a determination which isn't going to impact on
0: the outcome. The, so, REX was a determination which was in line with, if you like, what our understanding would have been yes. in the law before, even Absolutely. 98, whatever. It,
1: Absolutely. It, it's based it, on quite old cases just and reaffirms them completely.
0: And we, within the text here, quote, uh, the Prince in Massachusetts, Justice Rutledge, saying parents may be free to become martyrs themselves, but it does not follow that they are free in identical circumstances to make martyrs of their children. So that's, I think that's a 1944 American <laughs> decision that's then been uh, quoted in subsequent cases. Yes. And that still applies
1: Yes, I think it would be put less pejoratively now. So um, one of the two cases, Court of Appeal cases, that Sir James talks about a lot in the re cases case is, is the ReW case, where Lord Justice Nolan refers to the distinction between a, a, an 18-year-old who can do with their life whatever they wish and a child under 18, where he said it is the duty of the court to ensure so far as it can that children survive to attain that age. Uh, so there's a very clear, bright line at the age of 18.
0: Uh, so you could have, I, I take the point, there's a bit more nuance now than there were, but you could have a child who's 17 and three quarters, who's a Jehovah's Witness, committed Jehovah's Witness, who at 17 and three quarters, paying due respect and looking at all of the circumstances, the court could come to the view, no, we're, we're going to, allow blood transfusions, we're going to let you live to 18. And the same child, post 18, 18 in a day, as an adult, if that child has capacity, well not an adult has capacity, yes. then they are free, in the language of Prince, to martyr themselves. Yes.
1: And, and of course that is exactly what happened in, in the one of the first cases, where exactly that decision was made. Um, this decision of Lord Justice Ward, and it's the basis for Ian McEwan's novel *The Children Act*, where a, a young man did have blood transfusions imposed on him under the age, uh, age of eighteen, but it subsequently came out that he had required another one after the age of eighteen and had still refused it.
0: So, the I mean, as the method general position is roughly the same, but there is a greater There may be some nuances in some cases. There may be cases where, if you like, if we'd been advising in 2000, we'd be saying, well, no, the court will definitely say blood transfusion or definitely say treatment. Whereas there may be some cases now where the court's saying, no, looking at your highly personal circumstances... Absolutely. We we can respect what the parents are saying here and maybe not allow intervention.
1: And we cover a couple of cases like that in the book where where the courts have declined to intervene. And, and that that has mostly been, they're very specific cases, that the one that I'm thinking of which we is DB, uh, it was not only respect for the child's views and wishes, but it was also recognising that um, imposing blood transfusions on this particular child would would lead to them disengaging with the whole treatment plan. So it would be it would be clinically counterproductive. I mean, well. that
0: kind of looks back to what we were talking about before, the interest of judges in the reality on the ground. Yeah. So there's the T liver transplant case, which I was involved in quite some time ago, where the practicalities of dealing with not only the transplant, but also the follow-up, with a transplant, yes. meant that it was of importance to assess whether, in reality, that would work, and that in a way the court's not going to engage with something that's either futile or is going to create so many problems in the child's life that, in fact, you, you're you know you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, whatever you like, because you're have to focus in the best interests in the real world rather than in some alternative objective reality that doesn't exist.
1: And I'd say that's what makes these medical treatment cases so fascinating, is because often you do have to drill down into uh, what treatment is going to look like. Uh, You have a very detailed focus on the different possibilities and what treatment is going to look like, how it's going to be achieved. It's not a hypothetical situation that the court is dealing with where it simply says well you know, clearly you should um, you should stay alive so we will we will okay whatever treatment is necessary a, a judge will want to know in a lot of detail in many of these cases exactly what the treatment is going to look like and what the downsides of that not just the medical downsides clinical downsides but the the downside in terms of the therapeutic relationship the child might need for years and years and you potentially lifelong in some circumstances. So they do look very widely as well as quite intensely at what's being done.
0: Maybe finally if we just turn to some practical tips because clearly one of the aspects of these cases is that they can reach a hearing, there can be a lot of tension and understandably given what's at stake And I think one of the things we focus on under practical tips in this chapter is greater use of alternative dispute resolution and and mediation. What are your thoughts about that and how best to affect that in practice? Uh,
1: I'm I'm a huge fan of mediation. A, A lot of lawyers aren't, partly because often by the time something comes to us, especially as barristers, people are more entrenched and it's felt that there is no point and it will just cause further delay. It's also has a, I think, slightly unjustified reputation for being expensive, which, which it isn't always. But of course, as barristers, we don't see the cases that have been mediated away, so they never go to court, uh, of which we know there are really quite a considerable number um, from our contacts who are mediators and work with, um, and work with these cases. And, Uh, My own experience is that if you time mediation right, it can achieve a great deal. Sometimes it will achieve the the resolution of the whole case, which is always cheaper for everybody, and it's always less traumatic uh, and upsetting for everybody. Uh, But sometimes even where you can't achieve a final agreement, you can make quite significant steps in terms of how relationships are managed uh, um, um, and helped to become more positive, even though there may be a fundamental disagreement.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say what, what we can see in practice, and sometimes there's kind of nearly a quasi-mediation going on at, at, between counsel. So as barristers, yes. when we're brought in, we are communicating with counsel on the other side. And one of the problems that you can often see in these cases is just literally... a. Dr- failure of communication. Yes. It's like the doctors on Venus and the family are on Mars. Absolutely. But, and so often. I mean, I am biased. My wife is a mediator. But what she would say, and I would agree with, is trying to get mediators involved as early as possible can be yeah. incredibly helpful. And I think it, people can, as you've highlighted, focus too much on, ah, here's the end result and we've sorted it. Even if it reduces, only only <laughs> reduces the temperature it provides a method for improving communication and exchanges yeah. and of at least reconciling the party. If a party ultimately, in quotes, loses, Yes, at mm-hmm. least they've got a better understanding of why they've lost and the motivation on the other side.
1: Yes. And if a party is losing in some of these cases, you, they still have to go through the, the, the process sometimes of, of, of watching their child have life-sustaining treatment withdrawn. And, and it can only be a good thing that that happens in an atmosphere of as little acrimony as possible. I ha- having having said that it's good to get people in as early as possible, I agree with that. And I, th- I think it is, and I've had experience where the emotions are so high that doctors are actually quite frightened to speak to the parents, so the communication gets worse and worse because the parents are more and more upset. Um, the doctors are anxious about saying anything that will be misconstrued, and so communication just dwindles. I- inevitably, that that just raises tensions and raises feelings of suspicion and uh, and anger, and and so sometimes in those circumstances, a mediator can simply open up the channels of communication again. Um, I had one case where what the mediator achieved was to inform the hospital that that one that one of the family members. Just needed some documents in Braille, and that would you would expect that to be part of a normal conversation. But it had but just it had just guess. never happened. Yeah. But I've also had a case where the outcome of the case, in fact, was, was reached unexpectedly by agreement on the morning of the of the final hearing, by the the, the family member concerned conceding that uh, life sustaining treatment should be withdrawn. But then how that happened became completely entrenched. Until the expert who had given an expert opinion, who was also a very experienced mediator, joined the discussions and essentially mediated how that how it was going to happen in a way that was entirely satisfactory to both. Although looking at it to start with, you'd have said one one or other will win, but this is we're going to have to go back to court to get to get an answer on it.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sophia. It's been great chatting to you. And it's great that we're still talking. And in fact, I should say it's been a delight having you as a co-editor, not having to deal with all of this on my own. And
1: it's been a privilege to help.
0: And we will be back again with another podcast. To find out more about the speakers or how we may assist you and your clients, you can visit our website at sergeantsin.com or call a member of our Clarking or client care team at 0207 427